Welcome to the Liberty Baptist Sermon Archives. The message you're about to hear was preached at Liberty Baptist Church in Easton, Massachusetts. You can find out more about us or contact us at mylibertybaptist.org or just look us up on Facebook. And now we hope that this message from God's Word will be a blessing to you. Pastor, appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here and have enjoyed the weekend tremendously. Um, we appreciate you guys and your support for us, your prayers for us, your partnership with us. And I won't give a whole ministry rundown kind of like I did in Sunday school other than to say um, it, it is a blessing to know that uh, over these last seven projects, these last eight years that we've been able to partner together, over 75,000 John and Romans that have gone out uh, uh, all over the world, really, uh, several different places. And, uh, and we typically will assemble over half a million John and Romans every year um, as, as, a, as a ministry. Um, I'm in churches all up and down the East Coast and uh, as far west as Buffalo, New York, and and as far south as Maryland, Delaware, all through New England, and just praise the Lord for the opportunity uh, that he's given us to be part of this ministry. Uh, I believe you support Brother Dale Money as well, is that right? Yes, he was the man that God used to ultimately uh, get us into the Seedline ministry. Our church, when we lived in Michigan, for, for about a seven-year period, we lived in Michigan, and uh, due to my job that I had at the time. And our church there got involved with the seed line ministry when Brother Dale was doing seed line there out of Milford, Ohio. And uh, he would come up during our missions conference. And, and after doing that about four years in a row, we went forward, surrendered to what the Lord would have us do. And less than a year later, he opened the door to come to upstate New York. And uh, having been uh, born and raised in Ohio and my wife from Ohio as well, and then living in Michigan, we'd been in the Midwest our whole lives and, and never would have dreamt that the Lord would have uh, brought us to the East Coast, upstate New York and the Northeast to, uh, to work with Seedline. But I'm so glad that the Lord did that. And uh, we just rejoice in the last 16 and a half years now of uh, all that the Lord has allowed us to do and all the folks that he's allowed us to meet uh, through all these years at all these churches. And so Appreciate that so much. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 14 this morning. That's where we're going to be. 1 Samuel 14. We're going to read some verses here out of our text here this morning. And then we will ask the Lord's blessing upon the message. Uh, but let's start in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And we will begin in verse 1. The Bible says, Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, and the people that were with him were about 600 men. Uh, down in verse 6 it says, And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say thus to, uh, unto us, Tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, come up unto us, then we will go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. 
And both of them discovered themselves under the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they had hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about twenty men, within, as it were, an half-acre of land which a yoke of oxen might plow. And there was trembling in the host, in the field and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers. They also trembled, and the earth quaked, so it was a very great trembling. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. Down in verse 20 it says, And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great discomfiture. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth-Avon. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. We thank you for your word. I pray now that as we look into your word this morning that you'd speak to us. I pray that uh, you'd bless the reading and the preaching of your word. We thank you for it. Thank you that we have it. Thank you that we can read it, understand it, help us to be diligent students of it. And uh, Lord, we know that uh, without your word, we would be lost without hope. But because you gave your word and because you sent your son to die on the cross for us, and because this word is the testimony and the record of that, we're just so thankful that we can have a relationship with you. I pray here this morning that you just meet here in the midst of us as, as we have gathered together uh, around your word. And uh, we, again, just thank you for it. We thank you for our Savior. I pray that uh, Christ would be magnified in all that's said and done and exalted in all things. And, and uh, Lord, again, we love you. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in First uh, Samuel... 14, we have the account of this battle that is fought here between the Israelites and the Philistines. And as we read through those verses, the first thing that kind of jumps out that I want you to notice is, is there's a lot of Israelites that are gathered together. There's a lot of Israelites that ultimately join into the battle and fight by the time we get down to the end of that passage. But initially, it was only Jonathan and his armor bearer that had, uh, that had begun things, that had started uh, things up, if you will. And, and the picture that, that I see here is this. Uh, you can identify kind of, if you will, uh, four different groups, if you will, uh, here in this passage. And uh, though this is the historical account of the, this battle that the children of Israel fought, I think we can also see types of Christians or believers represented here. Uh, you'll notice that as we began the passage, we have Saul and the 600 with him, and it says he tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah. And if you study that word tarried, oftentimes in the scriptures, that's, that's seen in a negative light, tarrying. Basically, it's this, that Saul is there. Uh, there's an army of Philistines arrayed against him. There's a battle to be fought, but yet he's just not, he's just there doing nothing. 
uh, the Bible says that he tarries there in the uttermost. So the first group would be those that are just kind of there and they're doing nothing. And uh, that would be representative of Saul and those 600 that were with him. As we read on further, we saw a couple more groups. It says in verse 21, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines, that they turned about, or, or, or they in the country around about, they turned to be with the Israelites. So some of the Israelites were off living with the Philistines. That would picture the second group, the first type of first group of Christians is a type who are just kind of there doing nothing. But the second group would be those that are off in the world. They're with the Philistines. The Philistines are a picture of the world. And you have some Christians that are off in the world doing the things of the world, living uh, like the world, but yet they turn to join the battle. The third group there in verse 22, the Bible tells us that the men of Israel, which had hid themselves, they came out and began to fight. So the third group would be those, those that are in hiding. And that would picture those today that are, that are, for whatever reason, just kind of in hiding. They're not really doing anything either. But as opposed to gather to get gathered together in their safe little camp, so to speak, they're off in caves somewhere hiding from the enemy. The Bible tells us that we have an enemy, we have a spiritual enemy, and that the weapons that we fight with are not carnal, but they're spiritual. And so we, are, we engage in spiritual warfare, right? Ephesians 6, the armor of God and all of that. We are to fight a spiritual battle. But of course, when you go into battle, it takes courage. When you go into a physical battle, how many have served in, in the armed forces? Anyone here? Several. Um, I don't know if you saw any kind of uh, a, a battle scenario, but obviously you know that to go into battle takes a great deal of courage. The opposite of courage would, I suppose, be fear. And some of these Israelites, they were afraid. They saw the enemy, but they went and hid. By the way, the enemy knew they were hitting because, hiding because when Saul and, uh, sorry, not Saul, Jonathan and his armor bearer went up to confront them, what did the Philistines say? Oh, they've come out of their dens where they've been in hiding. So these three groups, if you will, that probably number somewhere in, in the several thousand, uh, you have those that are just kind of sitting around and doing nothing. You have those that are off living in the world, those that were with the Philistines. And then you have those that are fearful. They don't want to get involved, and they're just hiding. But then you have a fourth group, and of course that's represented by Jonathan and his armor bearer, this would be the Christian or the believer that wants to get something done for the Lord. That basically says, look, there is a battle to fight, and so there is an enemy to engage with. And so we are going to go and we are going to fight for the Lord. We are going to do this. And, and, and so they do. And, and the Lord gives them that sign. This wasn't an unwise decision. This wasn't Jonathan just blindly charging ahead. But he says to his armor bearer, we'll, we'll, we'll let them know we're coming. And, and if they say, hold on, we'll come down, then we know that the Lord's not in it. But if they say, come on up, if they invite us on up, we know that the Lord is in this. So as far as Jonathan is concerned, he's heard from the Lord. He knows that the Lord is in what they're doing. And so they're going to go and they're going to get something done for the Lord. And so they do. They go and they, they begin the battle. And uh, 20 men, it says that first slaughter was about 20 men. And then, of course, there's trembling, there's the earthquake, and they begin to turn and fight and all these things. And what's interesting is the other three groups, they all eventually get involved. Once Jonathan and his armor bearer stirred some things up, those that were with Saul tarrying in the uttermost, they joined the battle. Those that were off living with the Philistines, the Bible says they turned and joined the battle. So they turned from the Philistines and they joined with Saul and the Israelites. 
And then those that were in hiding came out and joined as well. And of course, the Lord then in verse 23 saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth-Avon. And it brings up the question, what made the difference in, in the life of Jonathan? I mean, is there anything in this chapter, in this account, that sets Jonathan apart from everybody else on that day? And what's interesting is if you continue to read, you'll see that. And this really is the heart of the message, what we're going to look at here next, starting in verse 24. The Bible says, And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged on mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. And all they of the land came to a wood, and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were come into the wood, behold, the honey dropped, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand, and dipped it in a honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes were enlightened. Now I want you to notice that phrase, his eyes were enlightened. Jonathan tasted of the honey that came from the honeycomb, and the Bible tells us that his eyes were enlightened on that day as they were fighting that battle. Hold your finger here and turn over to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And I want you to see this picture that the Bible gives us. Psalm 19 starting in verse 7. <clears throat> the Bible says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Notice that phrase there? Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than, notice this, honey and the honeycomb. So here in Psalm 19, what have we just read about in these four verses? The Word of God, right? The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord, if you ever go to Psalm 119 and just read through all 176 of those verses, 174 of them make a direct reference to the Word of God. And you'll find those words over and over and over. Law, commandments, statutes, judgments, testimonies, and so on. All speaking of the Word of God. What does the Word of God do? Well, according to verse 7, first of all, it converts the soul. That's where it starts, right? When a person gets saved and they accept Christ as Savior... The Word of God is that incorruptible seed by which we are what? Born again. So the Word of God, it converts the soul, but it also it makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It enlightens the eyes. It is clean, enduring forever, and it's true and righteous altogether. And then it gives a couple more comparisons. More to be desired are they, and, and what is the they in verse 10? Well, the statutes, the laws, the judgments, the testimonies, the commandments, the words of God. More to be desired are the words of God than gold, yea, than much fine gold. What's the Bible telling us? These words are more valuable than gold, than silver, than money. Also, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. 
The Bible is likened to honey and honeycomb and sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. What did Jonathan do in 1 Samuel 14? It says he dipped his rod in the honeycomb and he brought out some honey. And what happened when he did that? His eyes were enlightened. His eyes were enlightened. What happens when we, as believers, are in the Word of God on a daily basis? What happens when we dip into that that is sweeter than honey in the honeycomb? Spiritually speaking, our eyes are enlightened. You know, you have these these four groups, if you will. You have those sitting around. You have those off in the world. You have those that are afraid and they're in hiding. And and it's interesting, not a single one of any of those three groups tasted any honey that day because of what Saul had said, because of the oath that he had made. But Jonathan didn't hear when Saul made the oath. Why? Well, maybe because he's already busy trying to get something done for the Lord. But he didn't hear. He tasted of the honey. His eyes were enlightened. In other words, he was strengthened. He was refreshed. He was renewed when he tasted of that honey. And none of the other ones did. He says uh, on in verse 28, Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. Then said Jonathan, My father hath troubled the land. See, I pray you, how mine eyes have been enlightened, because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more, if haply the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Notice that phrase in verse 30, how much more? How much more could have been accomplished today? Basically, from Jonathan's perspective, he goes into the wood, he tastes the honey, his eyes are enlightened, now he's been renewed, he's got some strength, he's just expelled a lot of strength and energy, starting this battle and and beginning this conflict, and so he tastes this honey and renews his strength, but yet everybody else, none of them had taken any. It says in, uh, at the end of verse 28, the people were faint. They were faint because they hadn't tasted of the honey. And Jonathan basically here says, how much more, how much more could have been accomplished if you all would have just taken a little of the honey? If you all would have just had your eyes enlightened by the honey, how much more could be accomplished? Folks, how much more could we accomplish as a local church, as individual believers, if we would just be in this book every day. Because the parallel is very simply this. As necessary as our physical food is for our physical health and well-being, so much more our spiritual food for our spiritual health and well-being. Job 23.12, Job says, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Jesus said to the devil in Matthew chapter 4, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So, we like to eat. Some of us really like to eat. We eat several times a day. We eat a variety of different things. And we do it because if we don't, we'll get weak, we'll get sickly, we'll, we'll lose our health. But yet we also take pleasure, normally, usually, I suppose, in what we eat. We eat to survive, but it's also enjoyable, and it's necessary. How much more? You know, how, if, you, if, you're, if you were to be honest, 
How many of you would say, I absolutely despise eating anything at any time? I mean, I know I have to. I know I, know I have to eat. But I absolutely cannot stand it. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's somebody out there that would have that mindset. But I think it's fair to say that most of us, we enjoy a good meal, right? And yet, do we approach this book as if, oh, I just, I don't have time for this. I mean, I'll read this morning, I guess, because I know I have to. I, 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 know, I, I know spiritually it's what I need. But no, that, that, that ought not be how we approach. We are, if, if we enjoy eating our physical food because it tastes good, you know, this, these words are sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Spiritually speaking, this ought to be as sweet, if not sweeter to us, than whatever it is you're going to have for lunch today. This is our spiritual food. It's our spiritual nourishment. And the picture here in, in 1 Samuel 14 is it's what set Jonathan apart. It's what made the difference for him as opposed to everybody else. He tasted of that honey. His eyes were enlightened. And how much more could have been accomplished? How much more could we as individual believers or as local New Testament churches accomplish for the cause of Christ if we would just be in this book on a daily basis all the time? Notice I said at the end of verse 28, I read there, and the people were faint. You know, they did, even those that were doing nothing, those that were living in the world, those that were um, off hiding, you could say, well, they got right and they joined the battle. But yet, they were faint. And it says in verse 31, and they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon, and the people were very faint. So we're going to see a progression here also that takes place. They join in with the battle. Jonathan takes the honey. His eyes are enlightened, but nobody else tastes it. They keep fighting. The Bible says they were faint. Jonathan makes his statement, how much more could have been accomplished, but they press on. The Bible says then that they became very faint. So there's a downward progression, if you will, a downward trajectory as far as their their. Um, their energy, their sustenance, if you will. Verse 32 then says this, And the people flew upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people did eat them with the blood. Do you see what it ultimately deteriorated all the way to? They went from faint to very faint to basically kill and eat and don't even bother to cook it. In essence is what happens here. They took sheep, oxen, calves, slew them on the ground, and the people did eat them with the blood. In other words, they didn't even bother to light a fire. They didn't even bother to cook anything. They just cut them open, and they dug in. And I know that's gross, and I know that's disgusting, but you know what? Sin is gross and disgusting, is it not? And what happens when we neglect what is sweeter than honey in the honeycomb? What happens when we refuse to go to the Word of God on a regular basis and have our eyes enlightened by the Word of God on a regular basis? What happens to us spiritually? We get faint, do we not? And if we continue on, we get very faint. And then ultimately, if we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves in something that maybe 24 hours, 48 hours prior to that moment we would have thought, I would never do that. I mean, do you ever think of those quote-unquote big sins and think to yourself, I, I could never, I would never do that. 
I guarantee you, if you ask these guys the night before as they're sitting there around camp, there with Saul and the pomegranate tree, if you would have asked them, do you think tomorrow night by this time that you'll just, you know, grab a sheet, cut it open, dig in? They would have said, no, absolutely not. Don't you know that's forbidden by the law? I mean, it's not just forbidden by the law. This goes all the way back to Genesis when Noah and his sons and their wives came off the ark. In Genesis chapter 9, God says to them, Genesis 9, 3, and 4, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. They were not to eat the blood. Of course, that's given in the law in Leviticus chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. God gives very detailed admonitions as to not to eat the blood. They are to pour out the blood, and they are not to eat it. Leviticus chapter 17, 13 and 14. Also Leviticus 19, verse 26, ye shall not eat anything with the blood. You'll even remember the controversy in, uh, in Acts chapter 15 when after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, some were going around and teaching that you couldn't be saved unless you were circumcised. And this big controversy came up, and so they sent these questions to the apostles and, and James presiding there in Jerusalem. And basically they, they wrote back and, and, and they told, uh, they only listed a couple of things. That, uh, that the believers were to abstain from. They were to abstain from fornication. They were to abstain from things that were strangled and basically don't eat anything with the blood. Circumcision, the outward act of circumcision, had nothing to do with whether or not a person could be saved or was saved there in, in, in that New Testament time. And so the point is this, that this isn't just Jewish law. This goes before the law with Noah. This is after the law, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in the book of Acts. They were not to eat with the blood, and yet they did. And again, the picture is this. It's gross, it's disgusting, and yet it's something that they engaged in. Why? Because their eyes weren't enlightened. They were starving. They were famished. They, were, they had no energy left. They, they went... And uh, all day, day, all day long, and they fought this battle, and they kept going, and they kept pushing, and they kept exerting, and yet they didn't take any nourishment, and they got faint, and then very faint, and ultimately they ended up in sin. That can happen to us if we're not careful, if we neglect the Word of God. So that's the picture that's seen here in 1 Samuel 14, and, and it's just so interesting because when you compare that with Psalm 19 and just liken the honey and the enlightening of the eyes to what happens when we as believers are in the Word of God, how our eyes are enlightened. I want you to turn to one more place as, as we close this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. As I... As I study the Word of God, I like to study words, I like to study phrases, and then compare Scripture with Scripture by using those words and phrases the way they're used in Scripture, and we certainly see that here in, in, in these passages that we've looked at in 1 Samuel and Psalm 19, but I want you to notice here in Ephesians chapter 1, of course, Paul, he is writing to believers in the church, right? 
So that's, that's, his, that's the audience, that's the recipient of this particular epistle was sent to the church at Ephesus, the church comprised of born-again believers. He says in verse 9, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So I want you to notice that he's writing to believers. He's talking about things that have happened, past tense. He's talking about things that are predestined to happen, future tense. But because they are predestined to happen, it's as if they've already happened. In other words, those who first trusted in Christ are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If you're saved, you are predestined to be glorified and one day receive a body like his body. I mean, it's a guarantee. It's going to happen. Verse 13 goes on and says, In whom also ye trusted, past tense, after that ye heard the word of truth. The Bible tells us that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The word of God is the incorruptible seed by which we are born again, that liveth and abideth forever. So again, in whom also ye trusted, past tense, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, past tense, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, past tense. They're not being sealed. They don't have to go for some special sealing of the Holy Spirit. They've already been sealed. When were they sealed? When they first trusted Christ, when they believed after responding to the gospel. Verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. So they are indwelt by the Spirit. They are sealed by the Spirit. It's like a down payment, if you will, upon that which is promised, the inheritance, the redemption. Speaking of the ultimate redemption of not just the Spirit being born again, but the redemption of the body when this corruptible body is changed into incorruptible in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So he says all of that, and he's writing to believers. And much of what he speaks of in those verses that we just read are past tense. These are things that have happened. They've trusted in Christ. They've been sealed. They've responded to the gospel. Wherefore, I also, verse 15, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of heaven, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So this is what Paul is praying for, that they might receive the spirit of wisdom and the knowledge, uh, a revelation in the knowledge of him. And look at verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is Paul here praying to happen to these these people. Is he praying for their salvation? No, we've already established the fact that they're saved, right? They first trusted in Christ, they're sealed by the Holy Spirit, but he's praying that they will be given by the Lord the spirit of wisdom, the revelation and the knowledge of him, that they may know the hope of his calling, the eyes of their understanding being enlightened. When you compare that to 1 John 5 verse 13, 
These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Again, is he writing to unbelievers? No, he's writing to believers. That ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. These things are written for that purpose. And they're written for us as believers, right? Why? So our eyes would be enlightened. It's very important that I want you to notice in verse 18, he doesn't say the eyes of your understanding being opened. Because their eyes have already been opened. Their eyes were opened the moment that they trusted in Christ, which had happened before for many of them. For really all of them that he's specifically writing to. These are saved individuals. Their eyes have been opened. They once were blind, but now they see. They were blinded by the God of this world, but now they've received sight. They were lost in darkness, but now they are in his light. Now they can see. Their eyes have been opened. But Paul's request is for something to happen to them, for something to be given to them, present tense, future tense, kind of an ongoing tense, if you will, that they would be given the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of him so that the eyes of their understanding being enlightened, kind of an ongoing thing. The picture is this. How many times must our eyes be spiritually opened? One time. One time. Once your eyes are opened spiritually, they are opened. But how often do we need to have our eyes enlightened? All the time, right? Every day. I've said this before, and I'll probably say it again. I know it sounds cliche. I grew up in a Christian home, went to a Christian school. I've heard all my life that we're to read our Bible every day. And, you know, we can make it sound almost like a, you know, like a kid's Sunday school song or a cliche. Read your Bible every day. You know how often we should read our Bible? Every day. Right? Read your Bible every day. Be in the Word of God. Why? So our eyes can be opened? Well, no, if you're here this morning and you're saved, your eyes are open. Your eyes have been opened to the truth of the Word of God. But we need continual enlightenment from the Word of God. We need to have our eyes enlightened by the Word of God on a regular basis. Why? Well, as, as we saw in, in 1 Samuel 14, those that did not have their eyes enlightened, they got faint. But they pressed on. Praise the Lord. Let's keep going. Keep swinging that sword. Keep fighting that battle. They got very faint. No, can't quit now. Come too far to turn back. Just keep pressing, keep pressing, keep pressing. All of a sudden, now they're starving. They feel like they're going to fall over dead. You know, it's like Esau. You know, give me, give me a bowl of soup before I literally die. Of course, he wasn't going to literally die, but you know, when you're starving, boy, you just feel like, ah, do anything for something to eat. Whether you feel like you're starving or literally starving, the response oftentimes is the same, right? It's the same thing spiritually. Spiritually, we get to the point where we're just starving for the Word of God, and we have at that point two choices. Run to the Word of God or fall into some sin, right? And may we choose the Word of God. You know, we're going to, in just a few moments, we're going to pray over those scriptures, and um, the John and Romans are designed with with an evangelistic purpose in mind so folks could have that booklet John and Romans in booklet form so that their eyes can be opened as they read those verses and as they go through that marked edition and read those highlighted verses and come to realize that they're a sinner in need of a savior and that Christ came and 
you know, the, the gospel in a nutshell, 1 Corinthians 15, that, that Paul gives to that church, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He rose again according to the Scriptures. I mean, that the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is, is, is the gospel, the message that we give. And those John and Romans are given for that purpose so that their eyes will be opened, so that they come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's so important. But bearing precious seed, they also print New Testaments and they also print whole Bibles. Why? Because when a person gets saved, though the Word of God is that incorruptible seed by which they're born again, the Word of God is also by what we grow. It's also what cleanses us on a daily basis. You know, again, picture the, uh, picture the tabernacle in the wilderness and you walk through that gate and the first thing you come to is the altar. And the altar is given with very specific dimensions. But after the altar, you come to the laver. And it's interesting, if you study all of the furniture of the tabernacle, the laver is the only thing that it doesn't give us the size of it. It doesn't tell us how big it is. What's the picture? You first approach the altar, and for us, we go to the altar once. We go to the cross once for salvation. How often do we, though, go for cleansing? As often as we need it. As often as we need it. And that's what the Word of God is for us as believers. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, your greatest need is for your eyes to be opened, to trust Christ for salvation, to realize that He came, He died, He was buried, He rose again. He died for our sins. He died for my sins. He died for your sins. And through faith in the blood of Christ, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all who call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved, your eyes can be opened and you can have salvation. You can settle that today. But if you're here this morning and you are saved, and I would say that's probably many, if not most of us, if you know Christ as Savior, your eyes have been opened, but are, are they enlightened? Are your eyes enlightened to the truth of God's Word? Because, folks, if we're going to be the type of Christian that God wants us to be. If we're going to be the type of Christian, if we're going to be like the picture of Jonathan saying, you know what, there's a battle to fight, let's get something done for the Lord, we're not going to be able to do it under our own strength and power. We have to have what is sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. We have to have our eyes enlightened by the Word of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, or if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know by contacting us at info at mylibertybaptist.org, or you can visit us this Sunday at 800 Washington Street in Easton, Massachusetts. May the Lord bless you as you grow in His Word.